0: Revelation chapter of chapter 4 excuse me verses 1 through 11 open your Bible there Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 That's our text Hopefully you have a Bible or you can navigate on your tablet or phone The topic the 24 elders around the throne of God worship him and they toss their crowns at his feet the title of our message the tossing crowns affair Let's let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. It's the only thing, Lord, that can divide between the soul and the spirit, meaning that it can get into the very deepest part of our hearts, reveal Jesus Christ to us there, his love for us, his grace in saving us. Lord, if there's people here that aren't Christians, they don't know you in a saving way, the Holy Spirit is seeking to draw them to the Christ so that they will see Jesus lifted up on the cross, dying for their sins, inviting them, Lord, to receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. We believe, Lord, that you can do a lot of work in this place. We've come with a sense of awe and wonder and expectation that we're going to meet with a living God who rose from the dead, who loves us, cares for us, has a plan for us. So Lord, speak to us through your words. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The Dresch family had a bad experience after Hurricane Irene. They obeyed orders to evacuate their Staten Island home as the storm approached, only to return and discover they'd been robbed. So when city officials sent out warnings A little over a year later of Hurricane Sandy heading their way they made the decision to stay put and ride out the storm bad decision cost George Dresch and his 13 year old daughter their lives and it left Patricia Dresch critically injured in a hospital bed struggling to comprehend life without her husband and her daughter there is a severe storm warning in Revelation chapter 4 In verse 5, we'll read of lightnings, thunderings, and voices which will proceed from heaven, striking the earth. This future storm has a name. In fact, it's so severe, it has more than one name. It's called the day of the Lord in one place. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in another. We know it best as the tribulation or as the great tribulation. It will be described in chapter six through 18 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It will last a full seven years and it will affect the entire planet and everyone who dwells on the earth. No one will be able to escape it. It's not a storm you want to stay behind and ride out. Thankfully, you won't have to. God is going to evacuate you. That is, if you're a Christian, God's evac plan is the rapture of the church. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you will be removed to heaven before the storm breaks on the earth. Number two, you'll be rewarded in heaven before the storm breaks on the earth. Let's take a look first of all in verses one through three at our removal from the earth. Did they still teach outlining in schools? I Always had a really hard time learning to outline. They wanted to use a combination of Roman numerals and the English alphabet and numbers. I could never remember when to capitalize and when to use parentheses. I failed outlining. We showed you, however, in chapter 1 that the Revelation provides you its very own simple outline. The Apostle John was told in chapter 1, verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. It's a great three-point outline. The things John had seen were his vision of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, in the midst of the golden lampstands in chapter one. The things which are seven churches in chapters two and three. The things which will take place after this are the subject of chapters four through 22. The revelation is well organized and we would add largely chronological. We don't claim to know everything there is to know about this book, but when people say to you, Oh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's so difficult to understand. It's all over the place. Quite the contrary. It's a book, one of the few books, maybe the only book I know of in the Bible that gives you its own outline and tells you that it's going to uh, proceed chronologically. Chapter 1 is the past, when John was exiled on the island of Patmos and received the revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 are still the present each letter ends with he that has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches telling us to pay attention right now today to what jesus is saying to the churches in what we call the church age beginning in chapter 4 we will see the future we'll see the tribulation in chapter 6 through 18 then the second coming of jesus in chapter 19 then the 1000 year kingdom of earth of heaven on earth, rather, in chapter 20, and then eternity in chapters 21 and 22. Very logical, very chronological. Chapters 4 and 5, where we are now, reveal what will go on in heaven just prior to the tribulation. They portray the rapture of the church, the evacuation of the church of believers before the future storm hits. And so verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And so after these things, after the churches, John sees a door standing open in heaven and he hears a voice saying, come up here. Was John really transported to heaven or was his body still on Patmos? Well, when the apostle Paul was taken to heaven, he said this, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. So if Paul didn't know and John doesn't tell us, then we don't know. Paul said, I know I was taken to heaven. I just don't know if I was in my body or out of my body, but I was there. That's the same experience that John has. John's experience placed just here in the Revelation between the churches and the tribulation, between the present and the future, is most definitely a type of the rapture. Now, you might be unfamiliar with the doctrine of the rapture it's more properly called the resurrection and rapture of the church because it involves both saints who have died and saints who are alive when it occurs it's taught clearly in 1 corinthians 15 and first thessalonians 4. let me read you some sample verses here first from first thessalonians chapter 4. this is verses 16 and 17. for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ is a way of uh, describing believers from the day of Pentecost forward. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost, everyone who has died from that point forward as a believer is part of the dead in Christ. And so the dead in Christ will rise first, they'll be resurrected, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We'll be with the Lord in the place that he has prepared for us. He said in John uh, 14 that he was going to prepare that place, and that's where he'll take us. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, not every Christian is going to die before the Lord comes. There will be Christians who are alive and well on planet Earth at this moment of the rapture. And he says in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we will be changed. And so Jesus will return in the air. He'll raise the bodies of the believers who have died and he'll rapture the believers who are alive. That means if you're alive, you'll be changed, transformed into a glorified body and together all the believers of the church age will be removed safely to heaven. Rapture comes from the word caught up in 1st Thessalonians 4:17. In the Greek the word is harpazo. In the 4th century AD, a guy named Jerome translated the New Testament from the original Greek into Latin. His translation is known as the Vulgate translation. He rendered the Greek word harpazo into its Latin equivalent raptius that eventually is brought into English as the word rapture. And so sometimes A person will say, oh, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. There's no such thing as a rapture. Well, it is in the Bible, uh, but it's in the Vulgate version of the Bible. Uh, In the Greek version, it's the harpazo. It's just that that's such a weird thing to say. Nobody wants to be harpazoed. (laughs) Do you want to be harpazoed? Well, you do, but you don't, if you get my meaning. Rapture sounds kind of cool, but if you want to be accurate, you don't want to be criticized, then start telling people that you're waiting for the harpazo of the church. They'll want to know if you've been reading Moby Dick or something like that, you know, because it sounds like, you know. But anyway, Jesus will return in the air and raise the bodies of believers who have died and rapture believers who are alive. Now, the first voice John heard was that of Jesus back in chapter one. He described it in both places like a trumpet. Trumpets in Scripture are often used to signal an assembling together. We know from 1 Thessalonians 4 and from 1 Corinthians 15 that a trumpet will sound as the church is caught up to heaven. And so a trumpet here is consistent with the typology of the rapture. He says, I'm uh, come up here, and as we'll see momentarily, that's heaven. John would see the events of the tribulation from the safety of heaven, John would be shown the future the things which must take place after this, and he has shown in order the things I already mentioned, the tribulation, the second coming, the kingdom of heaven on the earth, and then eternity. Now, by the way, it's become popular to suggest that much of what the revelation will describe uh, from chapter 6 through 18 already took place at the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and people try and say a lot of the book has already been fulfilled and it was written to comfort the Christians at that time. And they deny its future aspect. That cannot be true because John was writing around 90 AD and Jesus clearly told him the things he would show him were in the future, not in the past. He, he, he told him these things will happen. And so we're still looking at future prophecy. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. John was in the spirit, meaning that whether he was physically in heaven or not is a moot point. He is seeing the future from heaven uh, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His attention is understandably drawn to the throne of God. His throne is mentioned a perfect seven times in this chapter. From it, we will see terrible, bloody judgments sent out upon the earth. Here is how we relate to that throne today. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we study this morning these future events, perhaps today you are in a place of spiritual need in your life. The Bible says that the place that that need is going to be met completely and fully, abundantly, overabundantly, is at the throne of God, which you have immediate access to as a Christian thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so you can come to that throne. God has grace for you today. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever your problem is, God has grace for you in abundance, mercy overflowing. And so receive that from him. John cannot describe God except to say, like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Now, without taking anything away from this breathtaking scene, it's okay to ask, why these two stones? It's a little more than interesting that the Jewish high priest in the Old Testament wore a breastplate adorned with 12 stones, each stone representing a different tribe of Israel. You know how they do birthstones now. Uh, I, I know that my birthstone is the ruby. Uh, Please don't get me any rubies uh, because I don't wear it. But, you know, women especially know everybody's birthstone. Well, each tribe of Israel had their own precious stone. And the 12 of them were on the breastplate of the high priest. The first stone in his breastplate was the jasper. And the last stone was the sardius just like the two stones that are mentioned here. And so we get from this that these two stones represent all 12 tribes of Israel. If you were a Jew and you heard the uh, you know, the Jasper and Sardius, you would comprehend that all of Israel is being included. And so you're getting a hint from this description given to us by the Holy Spirit that God on his throne is getting ready to deal with his chosen people, Israel. And that fact will be confirmed again and again and again as we read through chapter 6 through 18. One of the primary purposes of the tribulation is to bring Jews on the earth into a knowledge that Jesus Christ was and remains their savior. In fact, at the end of the tribulation, we read in the Bible, all Israel will be saved. That's why one of the names of the tribulation, as I said earlier, is the time of Jacob's trial or trouble. Jacob standing for the nation of Israel. It is a time to bring Israel to belief in Jesus Christ. Now it says here there was also an emerald rainbow around the throne. A little later, we're told that before the throne, there's a sea of glass like crystal. Once again, analysis can only take away from rather than add to the incredible beauty of this vision. We can note, however, that while lightnings and thunderings and voices will proceed from the throne like a storm upon the earth, heaven is calm. The sea is like glass, solid and smooth. There's a permanent rainbow, which we normally associate with the ending of the storm. Whatever else is meant, John was safe in heaven from the storm. And that's more significant than you might realize because uh, take our, our contemporary culture is fascinated with end of the world stuff with apocalyptic stuff. All the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, everybody's talking about these various things. And the idea is that if we're not careful, we will wipe out the human race. The human race will cease to exist and cockroaches will take over as they should. Uh, You know, that kind of a thing. And, And so this rainbow around the throne is letting us know that that's not going to happen, that God is not going to wipe out the human race. Through the great tribulation as terrible as it's going to be but that he will save many from it so that uh, he can uh, accomplish his purposes and so very important that the rainbow is there now john is taken to heaven where he would be safe before and during the tribulation in chapter six There are other biblical reasons, there are actually a lot of them, why we understand that the resurrection and rapture of the church will occur pre-tribulation, before the tribulation. I showed you in a previous study that the stated purpose of the tribulation is to test those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is only always used of non-believers. The tribulation is one final severe mercy by God to draw non-believers to himself before it's too late for them to be saved. It is not a time he uses to purify or in any way prepare the church for his coming. We're told Jesus is doing that now by the washing of water by the word. And so you and I have tribulation in the world, but we won't be in the world for the great tribulation because that is not necessary to purify us. Jesus is doing that. He's sanctifying us by the washing of the water by the word. It's not a time for us. Here's another reason we are pre-trib. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It occurs 20 times in Revelation. 19 of those occurrences are in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It occurs again in chapter 19 when the church is depicted as a bride returning to earth with Jesus in his second coming. The church is absent from the discussion of the events on the earth during the tribulation. In no biblical passage which discusses the tribulation is the church ever mentioned we will be safe in heaven. Here's another reason we are pre-trip. In several passages of the Bible, the church is promised exemption and therefore escape from God's wrath. We just studied a revelation passage in chapter three which says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. God could certainly keep us safe through the tribulation, but he has told us that he will keep us safe by our being removed From it. Here's another reason we're pre trib. All seven letters to the churches end with the same words He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. During the tribulation, you encounter that phrase again. It reads like this If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Period. It ends there. There's no mention of to the churches, a phrase which is repeated seven times in the seven letters. If the Previously mentioned churches were still on the earth during the tribulation. Why are they not addressed? They're not addressed because they're not on the earth. Here's another reason we're pre-trip. There are a whole host of scriptures in the New Testament that teach imminence. They teach that the Lord's coming for his church could occur at any moment and there are no signs preceding it. It could happen right now. The only way for the rapture to be imminent is for it to happen sometime before the tribulation. Every other theory of the timing of the rapture renders imminence impossible. So we know the event that begins the great tribulation. It is when a world leader who will turn out to be the antichrist, it's when he enters into a seven year peace treaty with the nation of Israel, allowing them to rebuild their temple. And so as soon as that happens, That's the beginning point of the seven-year tribulation. If the rapture is going to take place after that event, then we don't need to be concerned about the rapture at all. In fact, it can't happen if it's mid-trib or post-trib, and so it kills the doctrine of imminence. The rapture is presented as imminent. Look for it. It could happen at any moment, and therefore it must be before the tribulation. One additional reason we are pre-trib, the church as a whole is not seen after chapter three until the marriage of the lamb is discussed in chapter 19. The church as the bride of Jesus Christ is seen as a complete definite group in heaven before the second coming of Jesus to the earth, coming back with the Lord. There is no sense that part of the bride is in heaven and part of the bride is on earth. In other words, there aren't Christians in heaven from the church age and then more uh, Christians in the church through the tribulation who are united at some point. We're all in heaven before the great tribulation. The rapture is a forced evacuation ahead of the coming storm. If you are a believer, you will be caught up. There's no partial rapture. Some people like to say if you're not really, you know, If you're not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ or if you just committed a sin or something like that There's no such thing as a partial rapture if you're a Christian if you're saved God is going to evacuate you off planet earth before the tribulation Non-believers are going to be left behind and they will hear the gospel preached in very different ways And hopefully respond to it by faith in Jesus Christ now verses 4 through 11 You're going to be rewarded in heaven before the storm breaks on the earth Time travel is a staple in the sci-fi genre. Am I not right? You have to have time travel. However, it never quite makes sense. It's better you don't try to figure it out. As Star Trek's Captain Janeway once insightfully said, the future is the past, the past is the future. It all gives me a headache. Unless God is the one showing you the future, which he is in this book. In the remaining verses of chapter four, he is showing us our future after the rapture, when we will be gathered around his throne in heaven and so verse 4 says around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones i saw 24 elders seating uh, sitting excuse me clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads now we're saying that the 24 elders represent the church why well let's start with the number 24. there happens to be in the old testament a significant use of the number 24 that we will find helpful In the book of 1 Chronicles, we're told how the priests and the Levites who served in the temple were organized. There were 24 divisions of priests and 24 divisions of Levites. Each division was assigned a schedule on a rotating basis to minister in the temple, thus giving everyone the opportunity of serving approximately two weeks each year. For example, we have four divisions of ushers that serve uh, once uh, you know, a, a week in succession, once a month. And so if you're new to the church and you come in, you don't know anybody, you just see that there is a, a, a division of ushers. There's four or five ushers and there always will be week after week after week and they represent all of the ushers. And so the number 24 is a number representative of a larger complete group. The 24 elders in Revelation are more than two dozen specific people. They are a larger group. Now, three features about their description is going to help us identify whether they're human or angels. And if they are human, exactly who they are. First of all, we see they are seated on thrones. They are not standing or flying or hovering. And that's significant because angels never sit in the presence of God. No verse says that they have ever done so. However, Jesus promised every believer in the church age to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, Jesus just said that in chapter three. And so if you're listening to this letter for the first time, you hear that you're going to be seated on thrones with Jesus, who's seated on his father's throne. And when you get to chapters four and five, what do you see? You're going to see Jesus seated on the throne and elders seated on thrones. And you're going to conclude that that's you. And that's the fulfillment of that promise. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we're also told God has made every believer to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so uh, the church is the only group that really can fulfill this seating, uh, sitting around the throne on their own throne. Second, the elders were clothed in white robes. These words were just used in chapter 3 of believers within the churches. Third, the elders had crowns on their heads. Believers in the churches were just promised crowned as, as well. Angels do not wear crowns, but believers can and will wear them. And so the 24 elders are definitely not angels. They are human. Could they be a mixture of saints from the Old Testament with saints Of the church age? The answer to that is no, because according to both Daniel 12 and Revelation 20, believers of the Old Testament period will not be resurrected until the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And this scene is 13 chapters before his second coming. The 24 elders represent the church the believers of the church age will be resurrected and raptured prior to the beginning of the tribulation the gist of these verses now is that we will also be rewarded and given crowns to wear and so verse 5 it says from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of god lightnings and thunderings emanating from heaven usually mean a storm of god's judgment is about to break forth upon the earth There are also voices. I love this. It reminded me of a scene in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. It captures a sense of voices in a storm. You might recall the nine members of the Fellowship of the Ring are trying to um, go across Mount Caradhras, and a violent winter storm breaks out upon them. Uh, blizzard, snow, rock slides, and then they hear voices in the storm. And Gandalf discerns that it is the voice of the evil wizard, Saruman, and then he starts talking and there's these voices in the storm and it's, it's pretty creepy and, and all. And so these voices in the storm, uh, in the case of the Lord of the Rings, not a good thing. Now in the revelation, the storm is about to break forth upon the earth, God's wrath against sin. There are voices in the storm, but it is a good thing. And here's why. Because throughout the tribulation, God will be calling upon sinners to repent of their sin and be saved. We're going to see him calling to men through two amazing witnesses. They're going to appear in chapter 11 and be on the earth for the first 1,260 days of the tribulation. Uh, We'll see when we get there, they're probably Moses and Elijah. They're indestructible. They can't be killed. In fact, they call fire down out of heaven on those who try to kill them. And they go around preaching the gospel. They are God's voice, voices rather, in that storm. Then we're gonna see God calling to men through 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They're sealed to serve the Lord in chapter 14, and again sent out as voices with the gospel. And then, amazing as this may sound, also in chapter 14, angels will be flying through the atmospheric heavens, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. It is during the tribulation when the verse will be fulfilled that the entire world will hear the gospel. Everyone, everywhere, no matter their language or how deep they are in the jungle or wherever they are, will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached by angels so that there will be no confusion as to what is happening. It is God's voice in the storm. And again, that's why we call this series The Grace of Wrath. Is the tribulation God's wrath against sin, against Christ rejecting men? Absolutely. And in that wrath, there is grace as he calls to men to repent and be saved, receive the forgiveness of their sins before it's too late. The seven spirits of God is an Old Testament name for God, the Holy Spirit. It comes from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2. We talked about this in chapter 1. His presence in this scene is represented as seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. You know, the Holy Spirit has to be represented in some way because he's always invisible. At the baptism of Jesus, he was represented in the form of a dove descending on the Lord. That's how they knew the Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus. He was represented by a dove. He wasn't a dove. He was represented by a dove. At the birth of the church, he was represented by tongues of fire resting above the believers gathered in the upper room. He's not a tongue of fire, but it represents him. And it leads us to conclude that if we are ministering for the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit that we will not bring attention to ourselves but will bring everybody's focus to the Lord, we will be, as much as possible, invisible. Think of yourself as an invisible servant and, and you're uh, light years ahead of where you, we, we are sometimes. We're a culture that loves recognition. And I admit it, I, I you know, I want people to pat me on the back and tell me how wonderful I am and how much I ministered to them and how great it was. I'm still waiting, but uh, you know, someday it will happen, I feel. And, and I'm not saying that you can't ever encourage someone or tell them they're doing a great job. I'm talking about, in your heart, the supposed need for recognition. What if everybody is recognized but you? How do you feel? The Ten people do a ministry and nine of them get a plaque. Nine of them get mentioned, and one of them doesn't, and that one is you. You should be so excited. You should say, hey, you guys got your reward. I might get mine, and I might get yours, too, when I get to heaven. And so we need to break out of that. In the world, fine. You want to be recognized for accomplishment? I think there's a place for that. It's an important place for that. But do that out in the world. In the church, be invisible. And when you're treated that way, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 6, before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. The Jewish tabernacle and temple on the earth were copies of a temple in heaven. In them was a brass laver or a wash basin. The wash basin was a type of this sea of glass. Again, lots of Jewish images throughout the revelation because the church is in heaven and God is again dealing with Israel. Verse 6, in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face uh, like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, creature is an unfortunate translation. The word means living one. They are a type of angel. They resemble the cherubim that the prophet Ezekiel saw in his vision of the throne, well, their praise reminds us of the seraphim Isaiah saw in his vision of the throne. And so a lot of people had visions of the throne room of God. And when Ezekiel uh, did, he mentioned certain cherubim. And when Isaiah did, he mentioned certain seraphim. All that tells us that there's different varieties of angelic beings. We don't know if these angels are seraphim or cherubim or something all to themselves, but they're definitely angels. Now, they, they have a weird description, Uh, But again, remember John is doing his best to describe the beauty of what he saw. Even inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's difficult to convey what these beings look like. Something we can notice about his description that just cannot be a coincidence. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, God told the nation of Israel how they were to set up camp around the tabernacle in the wilderness. Each of the four sides were to be encamped by three of the 12 tribes. The tribes of Judah, Issachar and Zebulun were to camp on the east and they were collectively called the camp of Judah. The symbol on their flag was a lion. The tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin were to camp on the west side and they were collectively called the camp of Ephraim. The symbol on their flag was an ox or a calf. The tribes of Reuben, uh, Reuben, excuse me, Simeon and Gad were to camp on the south side. They were called the camp of Reuben Their flag featured a man, and as you can guess, the last three tribes, Dan, Naphtali, and Asher, camped on the north. Their flag had an eagle on it. And so whatever is happening in heaven uh, is reflected in the encampment of Israel on the earth. Again, God is dealing with Israel through the storm. We're going to witness it safely from heaven. Israel will be in the heart of it. Verse eight through 11. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They don't rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Crowns were going to be received as rewards when we stand before Jesus Christ at his reward seat. And so, given the timing of all this, it would appear that if I uh, die, uh, and my, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or if I'm raptured, changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, Uh, either scenario, that's the time when I'm going to go before Jesus Christ one-on-one, individually, before what the Bible calls his reward seat, and he will review my life, burn away all those things which I don't want in my life anyway in heaven, and reward me uh, for the work that I did in his name with pure motives. And among those rewards are certain crowns. And so by the time we get to this scene, the entire church has been rewarded and we all have our crown or crowns. And in heaven, we're going to worship by casting down those crowns. Uh, What are the crowns? Well, the Bible mentions five crowns that are available to Christians. We don't know if these are all of them, but they are some of them. There is something called the imperishable crown. It's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we, an imperishable. And so we believe that this is a crown that will be rewarded to us for disciplining our lives uh, and pursuing holiness uh, rather than uh, letting sin dominate, the imperishable crown. Then there's the crown of righteousness. Paul mentions this in 2 Timothy 4 1. He says, A crown of righteousness is laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so this would seem to be a crown for those who love the imminent appearing of Jesus Christ. Uh, Because if you love it, you'll live that way. Uh, And the Lord says, hey, you waited for me, you looked for me every day of your life, you thought could be that day, and you're going to have this special crown. Crown of life is mentioned in Revelation 2.10. We read there, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested uh, for 10 days and you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, this has sometimes been called the martyr's crown because Jesus said, if you're faithful unto death as a martyr, I will give you the crown of life. James, in his epistle, says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so, certainly martyrs will receive this crown of life, but all of us who persevere in trial and tribulation will also receive. Uh, receive uh, probably multiple crowns. Uh, The crown of rejoicing is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 by Paul. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? The way it's worded, some people feel like Paul is saying that his preaching of the gospel, which brought them to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, is a soul winner's crown, in other words. Others say, certainly soul winning will earn you a crown, but also serving others in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the crown of glory is described by Peter. In 1 Peter 5, 4, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Peter was talking to the leaders of the churches. And so this would seem to be a crown reserved for those who serve well in a office of the church this text that we're ending here with verse 11 prompted charles spurgeon to observe there will be no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here on the earth and so we shouldn't really focus on a particular crown it's good to know what they are and and to study them we shouldn't focus on crowns at all really we should look to the cross of jesus christ we should bear our crosses daily and that will assure us that we will have crowns to cast on that great and glorious day, which the Lord says is imminent. Let's pray.